0: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Sol Bema. A few months ago, I was doing some research on the earlier years of the hospice movement, especially here in the United States, in relation to the work of Florence World. During my research, I came across a name, Kathy Siebold, and her work. Her book is The Hospice Movement, Easing Death Pains. I invited Kathy on the podcast, and we had a wonderful conversation. She spoke about her recollections of the earlier years of the hospice movement. Please take a listen. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me here. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Could you give our listeners a little background of where you grew up?
1: Sure. sure. Well, it's very um, connected to how I got to this research on the hospice movement and my work in hospice. Um, I grew up in a, at the time, a small town in eastern Long Island. Um, It was a very, (laughs) now it's not so small, very popular. But um, at that time, as a teenager, I was kind of interested in nursing, and I I have a, a Catholic background um and my mother knew these nuns the dominican sisters of the sick poor who had a group called dominicanettes mm. um were teenagers who helped them they were visiting nurse service free free in those days this is we're talking about the mid 60s yes. um to give away my age there uh so <laughs> anyway, anyway it's been a long long journey um so I began to volunteer with them. And these sisters also administered Calvary Hospital in the Bronx, New York, which still exists to this day. And in the mid-60s, of course, all this discussion, particularly by Kubler-Ross, was beginning to occur in the States. Um, And Kubler-Ross, as most people, I think, know, really brought to the forefront the the importance of helping people to talk about the dying process. So here I am, like a 15-, 16-year-old teenager going to the Bronx, really looking for a New York adventure. But ending up in Calvary Hospital, listening to people like Kubler-Ross and probably Cecily Saunders, but it didn't mean anything to me at the time, Mm -hmm. talk about this idea of care for the dying. So I was very impressed by that, um, as somebody that age might be and with my background. And then because it was the 60s, I went off and got my social work degree. And I was always the one working in the nursing homes, talking with people about their experiences of illness and helping people if they were, you know, terminally ill. I was the social worker who would kind of go off and, you know, they sort of saw me as somebody who seemed to have an aptitude for that. Mm. So fast forward to 1982, that one of the nuns who I worked with in the, at Calvary and as a Dominicanette, had become a lay person, as many religious people did in the 70s and early 80s. Um, and she was working at St. Luke's Hospice in New York City. I was about to go for my doctorate. I needed a new a job to pay me more to support myself while I was getting this doctorate and her her husband who worked in the same hospital where I was said to me Kathy there's a job opening up at hospice I was like oh that's cool I'd like to do that (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's amazing how youth can be so uh, (laughs) open-minded right (laughs) Um, and so I got the job um, in part because I think, you know, Maureen uh, advocated for me. She was the social worker there and and in part, you know, because I had the right kind of background for them. And so I started to work in hospice and I was also doing this doctoral program. And my interest was what I thought I would be doing my dissertation about was caregiver stress. I had mm. worked on a lot of groups with Alzheimer's fam- patients with Alzheimer's, their families, and, um, also just, and also with nursing staff, the, the caregiving stress of the nursing staff. So I, that's what I thought I was going to be doing. Yeah. But then I got this job at hospice, which was one of the early hospices. Um, it was one of the first three hospices in the U.S. Um, and one of the things I began to notice was that the psychology of dying was kind of absent hmm. from the process. Not that, not that it was totally absent, but but the idea that we needed to be talking to the families, doing bereavement care, yes, um, helping them with the grief process, was not quite what I thought it would be, given my early experience of uh, hospice, of you know, of Calvary Hospital, that um, it was much more of a medical uh, approach, which wasn't. By any means, so that's not a critique of that part because they did really work to ease people's physical suffering, mm-hmm. um, and they certainly allowed me, as people often did, because I'm kind of an independent spirit. They were, you know, they certainly allowed me to take on a few bereavement cases and and to you know call me in when there was a patient they felt really wanted to talk about death and dying. Um, and but it, but it was really a uh, uh, to me a uh, uh, confusing that why wasn't this so so I began to talk to people and and look at what was happening and that became the subject of my dissertation Mm. um and that so that's where this all got started um and how I came to uh write the book was when I then got a teaching job at Penn State I was involved with a group I never I left hospice but I never really left Yes. The kind of this has been like my life uh, connection. Um, I was part of a group at uh, the American Cancer Society that worked with families and patients who had cancer illnesses at all stages. Yeah. Um, so so anyway, I got a teaching job at Penn State, and I got a call from a edit book editor who said, "We're doing a social movement series. You have a hospice background. Would you write us a book?" Uh. <laughs> Which was like. <laughs> okay, Uh, you know, I never say no (laughs) to a new challenge. (laughs) Um, And that helped me to really expand beyond, you know, dissertation is a very limited process. Um, But I started traveling, you know, uh, Glazer and Strauss, who I referenced in the book, they did this early study of awareness of dying context. And they were one of the sociological folks who began to talk about how people in hospitals really weren't allowed to talk about their um, dying process, that the the staff were adverse to hearing about it. And they did this whole study Mm. and developed a whole method of research called grounded theory Anyway. Um, so let me know if I'm getting too in the weeds here. No, no, it's, it's
0: all good so far. <laughs> okay, all right.
1: Yeah. Um, but so so that sort of awareness of dying context and their methodology of going out, talking to people, just you know, kind of following where the trail of discussions led you. One person would take, we'll talk to this person, you know, and so you would go all I went all around the country talking to different people at different kinds of hospice programs and gathering my research about what were some of the common threads of uh, hospice care and, and that, and plus my own interest in, in the history of hospices, based on my experience with Calvary, all came together in the book that, that you were um, <laughs> describing today.
0: It um, is It is a good book indeed so uh uh-huh. you said you wrote your what was your doctoral dissertation
1: so my doctoral dissertation was very similar to the the um the book itself. It was a smaller version, not so much of the history of hospices um and not so much of the policy ish implications of hospice, but more just the looking at the social movement aspect of hospice, mm. how it coalesced how it Became institutionalized, a, a, a somewhat smaller version, I guess we would say, of the dissertation. With the uh, dissertation a smaller version of the book. Yeah. Um,
0: so, in your research, what did you find about yeah. Florence Wald uh, in the early years of the development of the hospice movement?
1: I never, I don't know particularly why, except maybe the time that I came in, when I came into hospice and started to do my research, things had already become somewhat established in terms of these three different programs and the the Medicare benefit was just beginning to come into place and we had all these new hospices developing. And and, uh, so I never met her particularly, but I met a lot of people who knew her. Um, and they gave different descriptions of her. But, but one of the things that was often said about her, she like Cecily Saunders was somebody who wanted to get things done. Yes, she didn't she didn't um, she didn't just want to talk about death and dying, which you know, a lot of people, not that they didn't want to get things done, but you know, some of us are better at, implementing and some of us are better at just sort of sitting around and generating ideas <laughs> yes. well, she, right you know those group processes she wanted to get things done and she had been early on um, influenced by Cecily Saunders and as was the the, the min- ministers were a very important part of the early phases of the hospice movement, as I suspect you may know, yes, Um, just because it was such a natural extension of their everyday work, right? Just as bereavement was a natural extension of my clinical work. Um, And so so they kind of introduced people um, to uh, the medical services. And so Florence Wald was, as you know, an important dean uh, up at Yale, and she she was not only a person who wanted to get things done, she created environments where people could come and people could talk, but also people could talk about how we're going to do this. The, so one person, uh, Zelda Foster, who was a social worker who was very important in the early days of the movement, she she just raved about how effective Florence Wald was at. at getting things, you know, being practical. What are we going to do? Cecily Saunders was the same way. What are we going to do? (laughs) Um, And then then I also met Jean Benalil, who was very involved with Blazer and Strauss and the whole Death with Dignity movement. And she said Florence was a, a force of nature, which people who begin... Programs, people who get something new started, have to be strong. These days, we might have called her a nasty woman, right? This is <laughs> this is what happens to us now. If oh, <laughs> if we have a zealot and we, we have a clear purpose, um, and we don't, you know, we don't let people distract us. You know, we, we, you you come on in a strong way, um, and I think that she did come on in a strong way, and she was determined. Determined to imitate uh, the Saint Christopher's Hospice that Cecily Saunders had begun in, in England, she saw that, while she, you know, she saw that as the way to achieve all of the goals of hospice, mm-hmm. meaning you know, the the psychological care, the bringing the patients into uh, an environment where they could have a control over their dying process to also have pain management and to have an environment, a living environment where people could be at peace during the the dying process. So, Mm. so she did that. She didn't, you know, as you know, or, you know, having read the book, um, you know, the Connecticut Hospice in Banford, Connecticut still stands as the exemplar of what hospice was supposed to be in this country. Mm. They got exclusions when the when the regulations came in, they got exclusions so that they could continue to be independent of the forces of medical the medical establishment, yeah. so to speak. So she was that was that was how I heard of her and you know, thought of her, a very strong woman. And had she, you know, perhaps been uh, able to be a stronger force, which I don't know how she would have, you know, she was one person. If there had been more people like her uh, who had a single-minded purpose, I think hospice might have been a slower development, but it might have kept more mm. of its original ideas. But there was just so much eagerness in the 70s to, to get something going that people were willing to accommodate, you know, to differ. How do we do a hospice? What's the easiest way for us to get one started? So and that still happens now.
0: Yeah. So what led to the popularity of hospice, like you said, from the 60s and 70s? What was happening then that made this such a big issue?
1: Yeah so there were there were a lot of forces um one of course was this whole idea that we were a death-denying culture that that kind of became a popular sort of discussion um in particularly in, in medical communities at, again with the clergy um but Cooper Ross was really when it, when you talk about the charismatic figure who got people's attention it really was Kubla ross who, who, who got herself out there and got people listening to this idea that people needed to talk about death. Mm-hmm. And it got into the public discourse, which is what has to happen, right, with the social movement. It's important to have leaders. But you got to have followers, yes. And so, and so she she really went around talking about her ideas from the from the sixties, right? Yeah. Uh, about death and dying, and that that was the thing that really got the public's attention and more awareness. And then, of course, you have people who go through this process. I mean, if you re- well, you don't remember, <laughs> but I do in the 60s you know the kind of care that cancer patients would receive was horrific i mean there was really no hope of cure but they had these new chemotherapies that they were trying to use in the hopes that it would do something to reduce the te- the the tumors or the the advance of the disease and and if you went through that at, you know Cancer is a great leveler of society. There's no mm-hmm. such thing as poor versus rich. Everybody can get cancer. And so you would get a lot, you know, you would get people who were survivors of, of um, cancer patients who would be horrified by what their, their, their family member had gone through in their last stages of life. So, mm-hmm. so you, again, had this ready group of people who crossed social class barriers. So now you have people with money and influence who are also concerned. And you need to have that for a social movement to succeed. You need to have people of influence who are going to, you know, get the attention of the legislatures or the people who can do something yeah. to help the problem. And so cancer was the focus, even though hospice is for any, anyone with a, a terminal illness, Um Cancer did become somewhat of a focus of the early hospice programs.
0: So, do you think um, treat at all cost? Do you think that was the denial of death, or the doctors were just anxious to see if their new therapies would work?
1: Well, probably a little of both. I mean, the, the the medical training at the time was, you know, totally focused on cure. You know, I mean, I remember one of our doctors always saying, "What does death and dying have to do with hospice?" <laughs> well, a lot, right? But but they, you know, they they talked about hospice as a, a way of providing a, a comfortable life. They didn't want to focus too much on death. So so physicians, for the most part, and you you know, you have to be always somewhat careful. But it's not all and every. But for the most part, medical practitioners were, yes, they were focused on their new techniques. They were focused on preserving life. And, you know, it wasn't so much, I don't want to give the impression that they were experimenting with people. Mm-hmm. They were hoping they could cure people. I mean, this yeah. is we see this now, right, if you think about it, Saul, with this terrible pandemic we have as the doctors got involved and and got more recognition understanding of what to do more people are surviving they may have long-term illnesses and struggles but we see the trajectory even of this terrible illness that we're dealing with now this virus um has changed as so so that's what that's what the medical profession does they Mm. they try new treatments they keep working to to see how they can be helpful with them, and they make advances. but But yes, their goal is to preserve life um, and to to stave off death. And so they were they were very skeptical, again, for the most part, very skeptical of this idea of a specialty program for uh, dying patients. they They did not think that was in the best interest uh, of the patient. You know, mm. the, the argument about fight for life, prepare for death Yes, is a psychological discussion um, that takes place. And the doctors tend to fall on the side of we should fight for life. Let's not worry about preparing for death. That yeah. will take its own course. Um, so, yes, that the doctors it, it did not refer. Even when the hospices began to become more popular and began to become a benefit, doctors did not want to refer their patients until the last few days before death um, and which really impeded hospice's ability to to do what they wanted to do which was to help people understand make choices um maybe come to some terms with their family about the parting process Mm. um so yeah they were they were much more concerned with treatment to cure Nobody uh, dies without being cured first in America was a statement that one of the hospice leaders said. And it's really? <laughs> <true>. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. So in
0: 1972, there was this death yes. with dignity uh, Senate yes. hearings. And I heard that yes. some people actually thought that hospice would be almost like a death house. It's like, yes. why, why are you? Yes. Talk yes. to us about mm-hmm. that.
1: Right. Yes. All hope abandoned, ye who enter here was a, a real fear. Well, you no. Know, now let's go back a little bit to the history, if you don't yes. mind. Yes, you know, please. hospices were not were not a new idea in America. You know, the hospice as a word existed for decades. It was a place for the poor, for the sick, for the traveler to to stay, but. Once medical physicians began to become more scientific and began to assert uh, a, a right over life and death, it's only, only a medical doctor can determine who lives, who dies, or, or who is dying, you know, to, um, they, they began to exclude dying patients from hospitals because they felt it wasn't a good look for a, a, a medical professional to be having all these people die. Hmm. Um, and so the religious... Again, back to the clergy, this always, healthcare has always been, as you know better than I, an important <laughs> aspect of, of uh, the clergy, nurse yes. nuns, priests, reverends. Um, and so in the mid-19th century, and in this country closer to the turn of the 20th century, hospices began to be specialized facilities for patients who were truly terminally ill. There was no hope for them. And many times they were also poor, so they weren't really able to access medical services, which could be a, a blessing for some, mm. um, given what the services were at that time. Um, and so hospices existed, particularly in New York, we had three. We had Rosary Hill, St. Roses, and, and Calvary. Yes. Um, and so those were considered death houses. Um, by the medical profession. Um, Mm. And everybody knew if you were, you know, if you were sent to one of these facilities, that was the end of your life. Mm. Um, Calvary Hospital in particular was a specialty hospital and their specialization was terminal care at the end of life. It was free for a long time. It's not so anymore, but it was a free hospital in the Bronx where people could go in that brings me back to how I got into this. Yeah. So when hospice first emerged, you know, back in 1972, uh, even earlier, but, but yeah. when it got the attention of the, of the Senate, which means we're beginning to get public, more and more public awareness and potentially some legitimacy for hospice programs, um, yes, it was considered by the medical profession not a good idea. They would advocate against it in that hearing. And in, in so, why do we need this? It was kind of their comment. We're mm. already taking care of things in the hospitals. Um, and uh, we had Kupla Ross was there, and at that time she was a little skeptical about hospice in America, and understandably because she had been out talking. About death and dying and having her own opposition, yes. to you know, being able to freely talk to patients about death and and helping educate the medical profession. Um, and so also one of the people from uh, from the Connecticut Hospice hospice, Reverend Delbehill, was at that same meeting. Yes. and he was the one to try to introduce them to this comprehensive program. So it was a mixed um, it was a mixed process of getting controversial ideas in that 1972 hearing, but it did get it did begin to get the movement some recognition of that there was possibly a viable uh, treatment option um, for patients who were terminally ill that might be uh, a little more comfortable, a little more. Uh, uh, help to ease death pains rather hmm. than just leave people to suffer on their own.
0: So how different is this modern hospice movement and their treatment plans compared to Calvary Hospital, like in the 40s, yes. 50s? Sure. What was the difference? Sure.
1: Yes. So the big thing that, that the modern hospice brought, I mean, it was a comprehensive program of care, of course but but the biggest difference that it brought was this idea of pain management that pain could be managed mm-hmm. um rather than you know because in our country in america we had a real bias against using it seems ironic today but we had a real bias against using opiates um, to ease pain the the fear of uh people becoming dependent upon it you know addiction the fear that it would just lose its efficacy over time, that the body adapts and you have to use higher and higher doses. Those were the, those were the things that people were concerned about back in the 60s and 70s. And so Cecily Saunders, over the doctor over in England, had developed this more modern approach to pain management, which used not just opiates, but it certainly did use opiates. Um, But a a comprehensive, you know, you you use, you know, pain management in in terms of drugs such as, you know, uh, morphia sulfate in this country. But you also look to physical comfort. Uh, You look to the bowels, always a big thing when you use opiates, um, and all of these various ways of keeping the patient comfortable, including psychological comfort that that pain is not just about physical pain. pain is also about emotional pain, and that if you attend to the whole patient, um, you would be facilitating uh, a better, a more comfortable an easing. And according to Saunders, and we could you could see this anecdotally, sometimes when you could contain the pain of of uh, dying, the patient would live longer, they would certainly be more active and involved in their life, whatever that life was mm. um, and so that was what the modern hospice, along with all the other components of care, really brought was this idea that you didn't have to die not only alone but you didn't have to die a painful death. but this was also a claim, if I can just also add it was a claim that was only partially true there are some there is some pain. Physical pain that can't necessarily be eased, um, but that that is just uh, unfortunate. And we just don't, you know, there are other surgical methods sometimes that can help. So all of these things were brought to bear on the hospice movement and helped facilitate a new way to promote the, it was a way to promote modern hospices. We're not, we're concerned with living. We're not about dying. Mm -hmm. Concerned with living meaning how do we help people to live to the fullest? while they are enduring some kind of a terminal illness, which could go on for a while. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org.
0: So in your research, what were the early ethical challenges uh, to hospice care or end-of-life care?
1: So, So one, of course, as we've been talking about, was the idea of when should you stop treatment, yes. aggressive treatment, and when should you begin say it's this is it um it's not going to work anymore that's you know the uncertainty of that is you know obvious i think to most of us who knows you know who's who's going to benefit from a treatment who's not is very somewhat idiosyncratic not totally but somewhat yes. um and some people will live better without treatment they'll live longer other people will die quickly people die quick so so that was one of the ethical decisions: when to give up on aggressive treatment, and that was a problem also with the um, with with the legislation. You know, the government, they, you know, that that hearing in '72 was all very nice and talking about, you know, the benefits of a hospice program or how to help people who were dying to die more comfortably. But when you get down to the legislative process, it's about what's it going to cost us? How are we going to save money, particularly at the time hospice came into being? So in 1982, we're in the Reagan years, and all Reagan wanted to do was cut costs, cut costs, cut costs. And also Medicare had given a, a renal dialysis benefit, which was costing the, the government a lot of money. And so they were, they were not going to give a free pass Uh, to hospices to do whatever they needed to do. So they really did make hospice cease aggressive treatment. So that really affected pain management because pain management sometimes uses the techniques of aggressive treatment, not for cure, but for easing suffering, so mm. th- so that created a big dilemma for for hospice caregivers, um, and and it caused a, um, a a new innovation. I mean, they were they were really motivated to get hospices going, so that you had hospice you had hospice programs and you had palliative care programs, which was a way to circumvent this problem of of people signing on for hospice and no longer being able to get a- aggressive treatment. The other ethical problem, the bigger ethical issue, was this fear of euthanasia that mm. was uh, occurred in our country. Um, we, you know, people always think of Nazi Germany, but the reality is that Hitler got his ideas from us, sadly. The turn of the century, there was a, 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 a euth- euthanics Eugenics. I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> but basically, there was this movement to remove people from society who weren't uh, considered uh, average intelligence or uh, physical well-being. So that you know, there was like, some encouragement to let babies who were disabled die. Um, taking people out of imbeciles, as they were called in those days, out mm-hmm. of society, sterilizing mm-hmm. people. So there, so we really had these eugenics movements. i I got up the word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the eugenics <laughs> movement um, really started here. So that that, and of course, the Second World War and and Hitler's uh, attempt to uh, eliminate a Jewish people were very much in the forefront of of people's um, thinking. And to them, you know, the fear was that hospice would somehow be another form of passive or active euthanasia. And even though passive euthanasia, meaning relinquishing treatment, letting the natural process of of the body occur, Hmm. was acceptable in a lot of circles, particularly religious circles and, you know, Um, The fear that it would turn into some kind of active euthanasia, we see that now, right? We have this movement to have assisted suicide, which, you know, makes a lot of sense in some ways, but the fear that that will become an active euthanasia process Mm. constantly gets in the way of these legislative processes. Um and you know people are moved by subjective beliefs, not by objective beliefs. If you look at the Netherlands where they have assisted suicide, if you look at Oregon where they have assu- assisted suicide, very few people sign up. It's a rare person who just sees the end as not, you know, like that young woman who was dying of a glioblastoma, which is a terrible death. Mm. Um, it's a rare person who is gonna want to actively end their lives. Um, So hospice had this, they had to do this tremendous turn, you know, don't even mention euthanasia when you mention the word hospice, you know, and this whole focusing on hospice is about life. It's about, uh, you know, quality of life, which was important at the time, you know, quality of life is an important aspect of how social movements uh, developed in the current, uh, in the, in in contemporary society. So, so that euthanasia was probably the biggest problem that they faced that people, even though they kept making these claims and trying to show that this wasn't about, uh, actively killing people, there was a real fear, you know, uh, in the culture and in certainly in medical, uh, society that Mm -hmm. this is what would happen. We would be not helping people. So those, I would think, you know, and also the cooptation process—the the, the final thing that I would say about uh, the hospices. Yeah, you know, all pro, all all social movements get co-opted by various forces. The way the 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 social movements that do the best are the ones that are led by the people who are directly affected. So if you look at the disability rights movement, the disabled were the ones. People with disabilities were the ones who led the movement. So they're going to be clear of focus and, uh, and make sure that what they want to happen, happens. Suffragettes, same thing. They wanted the vote. They weren't going to. But something like hospice, which was not led by dying patients. Dying patients weren't necessarily the ones who were saying we want a different kind of care. Mm. Um, it was nurses clergy, social workers, psychology, some psychology, some psychiatry. Those were the people who were motivated to start this movement. And as time went on and it began to look like there was a legitimate uh, program design that would happen, you got entrepreneurs getting involved in the movement. And that doesn't mean that the entrepreneurs are all bad, but they want to make money. Hmm. Um, and so once you get a group of people who are focused on how do we access resor- financial resources, they're going to compromise the goals of a movement so that they can get the resources they want. Hmm. Um, and that's exactly what happened with Medicare. And in the last, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last decade, you begin to see these um uh, Articles in the newspapers about how hospices as profit organizations are not providing even the good quality medical services because, like nursing homes, you, if you're for profit and you're on the stock market, all of a sudden everything is about cost containment. And that means you give minimal services. So there's these for profit hospices that, you know, kind of catch the eye of the journalists. And they're like, this isn't, you know, they're not necessarily doing a, a good job. Um, so that's the other, you know, so those those three things, I would say, would probably be the major sort of ethical issues that affected the hospice
0: movement. So um, in your book, you're clear that the, I, the original idea of the hospice pioneers uh, is not what is happening right now. So there's been a lot of change and you articulated earlier because it's not being led by the terminally ill patients.
1: Right. So how far
0: has hospice drifted from the initial vision?
1: It's a range, really. Um, What's interesting about hospice is that it continues, because the issue of care of the dying and and quality care of dying continues to be uh, a subject that's important, you know, because we keep coming up with new treatments. Sometimes that's terrific, but sometimes the new treatments are, you know, worse than the disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the the issue never, you know, really is resolved, and that is one of the uh, ideas about stage theory and social movements. Because social problems are constant; poverty, it's a constant, um, and so social movements kind of continue, whether they are. Uh, how powerful they are, how organized they are, um, varies over time. But with hospice, so with hospice, though, I wouldn't call it so much of a, a social movement. It's more in its social problem, very early phases again, um, whereby you see different groups starting different kinds of hospices. It mm. continues to develop. You, you know, I don't research it in the same way that I did back in the 90s. Mm. But but I keep you know, because my ear is open, um, <laughs> I keep hearing about, you know, a hospice that has opened that maybe it's a group of volunteers who get a little funding. And so they get a, you know, like all of the early hospices, they continue to try to develop and get more funding, either through, you know, legitimate sources or you know, legislative sources, Medicare, or through, you know, benevolence. Um and I keep hearing about programs which do open up a freestanding, uh, facility mm-hmm. where patients and families can go and stay, um, which is an important, you know, was an important aspect of the original hospices. You know, the, the funding mechanism made death at home a necessity rather than a choice. I, I supervise, uh, Calvary started an an outpatient hospice service, uh, visiting like a visiting nurse, community-based hospice service. Mm. And you know, there, you know, it's very hard. Once a patient is on the hospice program, very hard for them to get inpatient services. And while, yes, for the most part, dying people might want to die at home, families might want them to die at home. Not all death is easily accomplished at home. There are symptoms the, the disease progression can, ha- can take a course that that could be very difficult um, for families and, and patients to go through at home without medical uh, oversight and support really um, you know so so you keep seeing the various types of hospices Mm. uh emerging and also you see these innovations like hospitals now my own mother when she was dying um of cancer uh she became comatose because of a brain tumor and the hospital just switched the bed from an acute care bed to a hospice bed so you have all these different ways uh in which hospice has kind of taken it's been taken in more um, um, the idea of easing death pains, the idea of comfort not cure uh, during the last period of life has become more acceptable um, within medical circles um, and I you know I think after this terrible pandemic with all the chronic diseases that are happening, I and mean, then I think that may also how do we help people not not when they need aggressive treatment, but how do we help people, particularly the elderly, who are going to suffer more um, with the the aftermath of having had a COVID illness? Um, mm. So, so the need—I I guess I would say—the short answer to your question is the need continues, and therefore the growth and the the spread of hospice programs and, and all their various forms continues.
0: Mm. The need continues, but like you said, movement is uh, the majority. This is a movement with where the majority is silent. <laughs> yes, yes, and, uh, yes. Then there's also yes, money have... involved.
1: Right. We don't have any, we don't have a Kubler-Ross. We don't have a Florence Wald. Um, the, the early sort of uh, people who were, you know, making the claims and were vociferous in making their claims and really had a passion uh, for creating something we don't see as much of. And and that's what you expect because people think the problem is over now. We've solved that. We have hospices Mm -hmm. in the eighties. I remember in the eighties when I would talk to people not connected to the hospice movement, just in my general life, there, well, what is, a, what's a hospice, you know, or, oh, a hospice is a place. No, a hospice is a concept of care. It's not a place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so that diffusion of information has occurred now. So people think, okay, we've got a hospice benefit. We have hospices. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're set.
0: So yeah. is there hope? Is there really hope for the original vision to realign hospice back to the original vision? Or is it beyond that
1: point? And I don't want to leave the impression that, you know, the ideas of hospice have disappeared. They they haven't at all. No. just they're diffuse. And it depends on, you know, which hospice program you go to. The more medical it is, you know, the more it's going to be focusing on uh, pain management uh, Mm. and not so much on, you know, grief I was, my question, as I said to you, was originally about bereavement and helping people grieve, whether they be the dying person or their families. And that, you know, while there's a whole sort of separate movement um, around helping people in grief, and we're going to have even more of that, you know, I'm a volunteer for working with the the, uh, medical staff who are dealing with this terrible COVID illness. I mean, that's, going to bring grief back into the forefront of our of our thinking um and the aftermath of trauma and grief right um but uh but you know these are things that continue to emerge in society how they emerge depends on what's happening um events slowly events around it
0: what are your final thoughts
1: well, I think, you know, that it, it's very hard in our culture, especially American culture. The hospices in, in England did, were, were much more uh, easy to replicate because the, the British are, were much more comfortable with the family base, the emotional support, spiritual support. In America, we value technology to a fault. You know, most of the healthcare dollars are spent in the last year of life and often to no purpose. Mm. But it's a combination of what the public desires, what medical staff assert they can provide um, that really creates this atmosphere in which it's really hard for people to say enough. Um, I don't think I want any more or for the medical staff to say to them. I don't think you need any more. Uh, I had a a patient who I saw for other reasons, but but she developed a terminal cancer illness not so long ago, and was in the hospital. And she was on the gurney going for one of her X-rays or CAT scans or whatever. Mm. And a nurse jumped on and said, "You know, we really should talk about terminal care." Mm. <laughs> like what? You know, but this—that's kind of an example of. <laughs> how hard it is to, for people still, you know, to say you're dying and it's sad. And I, but I think you know that too. And what would you like to do? Mm. To turn healthcare over to the patient and the family, particularly the patient um, I think is still difficult uh, for the medical staff. Um, Cause then it's, it, it's, it's uncertain. It's unclear what are we going to do here. What's actually going to happen? Mm. I think doctors are getting better training at um, tolerating uncertainty, and and you know there've always been doctors who are willing to speak the truth and not not try to play god. Um, <laughs> but their training <laughs> doesn't lend itself mm. uh, to that. It's that's about the security of the individual themselves, and you know it's very hard to talk to people about dying. Or about the trajectory of a terminal illness, Uh, but it's also very—I think—it's very fulfilling um, to be able to speak honestly with people who already know what's going on. You know, the thing about not telling somebody that they're dying, okay, but you think they don't know? I mean, it's their body. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I think that you know the 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 spirit of what motivated hospice is still in some of us but but our our love of of technology and our medical science and our belief that medicine can cure so much i mean this the, the claims of cure are so much uh greater than what actually can occur sometimes is and that's that's difficult it's a difficult problem to to solve
0: wow kathy thank you very much
1: well, thank you. It was, wow. I enjoyed uh, our having a chance to chat. Stay well. You're in Chicago, right? Yes. <laughs> Stay well. Be careful. Wear your mask. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
0: You too. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <Blessings. laughs> Bye-bye. Mm, bye. Take care.
1: Mm. Bye. Okay.
0: That was Kathy Sebold. Thank you for listening.